invite you to, there it is, uh, let me invite you to uh, open your Bibles or your bulletins, whichever you prefer, to Ephesians chapter 3 as we get started here. Um, I said this last week, and I, I try to say this every week, but it really is a privilege to be here at Faith, um, and uh, y'all have been very gracious to me as i fumble through things here, um, but it is, it's a sweet church uh, to visit and to serve alongside with Chad and Tim, um, so thanks for having me again. Um, last week, if you were here, um, we opened up the beginning half of the third chapter of Ephesians, and what we sort of said is that the third chapter of Ephesians is sort of the belt buckle of the entire book. It's really the place where Paul wraps up everything that he has to say uh, concentrated about being in Christ, about what it means to be formed in Christ and what it means to be saved in Christ. And he's going to, in chapter 4, plant his foot, we might say, and pivot and turn into the rest of the book focusing on what doing in Christ looks like. So chapter 3 is that belt buckle, it's that hinge where you feel the, the, the trajectory and the momentum shifting in this letter. So let's read these, these words together starting in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3. Let's read together. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. So let's pray and ask God to teach us His Word together. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give You thanks for the privilege of gathering together to worship, even as we come from various different places and different stages with our hearts and our lives in various conditions. Father, some of us come into this room with hearts like Swiss cheese that feel like we are just full of holes and wounded and in need of an encouraging word. And so we look to you as the one who sustains the weary with a single word. Some of us come with hearts that are proud and haughty and need to be humbled 
and need to be brought low to the foot of the cross to look again at our humble Savior. So we ask that you would meet us there. Some of us, Father, come with hearts that are doubting and confused and need the safety and the assurance of our Savior who spread out his hands before doubting Thomas and invited the skeptic to ask all the questions he would, to bring all the doubts he could, and to find you still sufficient to the task. Lord, we come tonight with hearts from all different conditions all over the place, but we all need the same thing. We need a fresh announcement, a fresh proclamation of the good news of the gospel. And so we pray as we open your word together that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that you would soften our hearts so that we would behold wonderful things through your word. We pray it in Christ Jesus' name. So hear us for his sake, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I don't know how much uh, musical theater you may have interacted with in your life. I actually haven't interacted with a ton. Um, but I've, I've seen enough either on film or in person to know, and I think you'll probably be familiar with the idea of a big sort of finale to an act. You know, uh, Broadway shows and musicals and things are broken up into acts. If you grew up reading Shakespeare, you know, in high school, if you were forced to read a lot of Shakespeare or classic plays uh, from the 20th century or 19th, you, you know that they're, they're, they're chunked up into three, four, five different acts, sort of like chapters. Now, when, when you go to the movies, there are acts as well, but they're not always sort of laid out for you. Maybe older classic movies might have an intermission or an act break in the movie. Um, but you get this idea of, of, of usually when you go to a musical, there is a big finale that kind of says, okay, the first act is over and invites you to sort of take stock of how far you've come, reminds you of all the characters you've been introduced to, reminds you of sort of what the central drama has been, and sort of invites you to maybe go get some popcorn and come back and sit down and, uh, and watch as the story unfolds some more. Um, for the, the dominating musical in my childhood was The Sound of Music. So I just think of, of, of Maria, you know, running away when she realizes that the captain's going to get married and that she's in love with him and doesn't know what to do and flees back to the convent. And that's this sort of act break of, okay, everything's going to change now. You've been introduced to everything. Now everything's going to change. That's sort of what's happening here in Ephesians chapter 3, is Paul is sort of getting all the set pieces out and, and striking up the band for a big number and sort of like uh, all the lights are going to come out and we're going to see, look at everything that we've talked about. Look at all of the beauty of God's grace that's been unfolded here. And now get ready and buckle up because Act 2 is coming. And we're going to get on a moving train starting in Act in, in chapter 4, and Paul is going to use a lot of therefores moving forward. There's going to be a lot of therefore this, therefore that, therefore in this relationship, therefore in your family, therefore your marriage, therefore your children, therefore your masters, therefore your, uh, all your relationships. Therefore put aside this, therefore take up that, therefore put on the armor of God. 
Everything is about to shift. And so Paul pauses, and this sort of finale, is it comes in the form of a prayer, which if you were here last week, you'll remember, he started to pray at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3, and then took this very long aside, and now we're coming back in, and so the prayer starts back, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And, you know, I, I, I've… I've poured over this passage a lot trying to figure out how do you summarize, how do you quantify, what is it exactly that Paul is praying about here? And, and the, best, um, the best way of sort of wrapping it up, if you were to put one phrase, I think this may not be the perfect term, but it's as good as any that I can come up with. I think Paul is praying for these Ephesian believers to flourish. He, he is praying for them to experience what we might call in our day the good life, right? He is praying for them to be filled full, to be filled with all the fullness of God, to know what it is for Christ to dwell in their hearts by faith. But that invites us to ask an important question. Is where do I think the good life is? Where, where do I think the good life is to be found? What do I think it takes to flourish. There's a book uh, by an author named Andy Crouch called Strong and Weak that examines this concept of human flourishing and, and sort of lays out, well, the, here, what, here are the things we think of as flourishing is, I live in the right zip code, right? I have the right house. I've got the right spouse. Um, I have a really comfortable financial situation. Uh, drive the car that I want to drive. I go to the school that I want to go to. I'm accepted into the social uh, groups that I want to be connected with. I know the right people. Maybe I, I, uh, I come from the right background. I went to the right college. I work in the right uh, field, and I have a, a, a good hope of promotions to come, Wh- whatever that looks like for you. And, and, and what Crouch does in that book is, is sort of turn this idea of flourishing on its head and says, you know what, that can't be true because Jesus had none of that, and none of us are flourishing as much as Jesus was flourishing. Wouldn't we say that, that, that if we're going to look to what does it look like to live the good life, what does it look like to flourish as a human being, to be gloriously and meaningfully alive, we have to look to Jesus Himself, and we have to look to His Word. So, I would just invite you all to think about that as we come into this. Is it possible that Paul is laying out in this prayer a form of flourishing, a form of the good life that can include you being vulnerable? that can include you experiencing loss, that is resilient enough to withstand everything that you once thought made life good being taken away? What if that's what's being laid out? And so I just want to look at three things that I think… There's a lot going on in this prayer, so we're just going to pick three sort of themes out. A life of flourishing is three things. It's captivated with God saturated with love, and punctuated with praise, okay? Captivated with God, saturated with love, punctuated with praise, okay? 
life of flourishing, first and foremost, captivated with God. Did you notice this prayer is bookended on both sides, the beginning and the end, with God Himself? Right? Paul is, is modeling for us what it looks like to be captivated with God. We start out in verse 14. I bow my knees before, and let me pause there and just point out, it was not common in the first century to bow your knee while praying. Right? Uh, if, if you look at the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, uh, they're standing in the temple to pray. The, the, the posture of prayer in this culture was standing prayer, standing before God. So Paul indicating that he's bowing his knee is, is cluing us in that this is a particularly engaged, fervent, heartfelt prayer. Right? So he is fully engaged in this prayer and he, that means that he must really, really believe that the one he's praying to can change things, right? Because he's captivated with the Father. I bow my knee before the Father. And it says, before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, that might seem a little bit like an out-of-left-field out sort of curveball. In Greek, though, the term for Father and the term for family are the same root, right? It, 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 father is, is pater, family is patria. You see how they're connected? Now, if, if you've learned Spanish or Italian or German, there's a lot of connections there where family and father come from the same link. We've lost that in English, so it, it, it seems a little disjointed, but he's saying he's, he's bowing before the father from whom every father and family originates. Does that make sense that he's, he's doing a play on words here? And it's, highlight, it's highlighting God's sovereignty and His glory, the, the riches of His glory that He mentions in the next verse, in creation, right? He's highlighting God's glorious work through creating all of the earth, and creating all of, of the created world and setting human beings on that. And then verses 20 and 21, as we sort of land the plane in the prayer, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He, he lands the prayer praying to the one who is able to answer. Right, so I just want to, to let us focus there for one second about how captivated with God Himself, Paul is. Right? As believers, I think sometimes we fall into a temptation of being more captivated by the benefits that we get from God than by the idea of God Himself. At some level, these are inseparable. I think at some level, you can't say, to an infant, well, I want you to have a relationship with me, not just because I take care of you and change your diaper and feed you. At some level, you can't get outside of our limitation there, right? An infant is not going to know how to, how to fully love a parent outside of the benefit that that infant gets. But, it, but on another level, I just want us to lean into this idea of loving God and being captivated by Him of having Him as the preoccupying thought in all of life. 
in a way that would make us curious about Him, enough to, to, to want to know more about Him. Right? When you spend time with a friend, when you spend time with an individual, especially when you're falling in love with someone, don't you just want to know more about them? Right? I'm saying that as an antidote to what I think has become sort of our theology allergy to where we say, well, what difference does it make for me? Right? Tell me why this matters to me. Well, one of the reasons it might matter is because by God's grace, He has turned us from darkness into light, which means we are now lovers of the light and we are lovers of God. So, captivated with God Himself. And did you notice also that this is a It's not just a a God-centered prayer, it's a Trinitarian prayer. Um, uh, It will will be a blessing to your life and to your soul to start noticing ways in the Gospels and, excuse me, ways in Scripture that all three persons of the Trinity pop up together. Um, a, a great example of this is when Jesus comes to the Jordan River to be baptized, right? And, and Christ is stepping into the river and, and literally stepping into His sort of formal work as the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, and the Father speaks this confirming word from heaven, you are my Son, I have uh, in you I am well pleased, and you have all three persons of the Trinity there. Another great place is, is the, the closing doxology of 2 Corinthians where Paul says now the, the, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the love of God the Father uh, and the, the love of Christ be upon you and give you peace. And now you see that in this prayer. You see this bookending of focus on the Father Himself focusing on His creative activity and the riches of His glory. And then you see the strengthening Spirit in verse 16, and then the indwelling Christ in verse 17. Do you see that? Something the Puritans talked about was this maxim that the outward works of the Trinity, right? There, there's, some, there's mystery within the Trinity that we, we, if you plumb the depths too much, you're going to commit heresy, so just be careful. Uh, but the outward works of God as Trinity are all one meaning that, that all three persons of the Trinity are engaged in each of their outward acts. Now, you can think about this in creation, the, the, the sort of stereotypical way that theologians have described this is that God is the author, the Son is the agent, and the Spirit is what, what we might call the executor, the one who, who actually moves things. So, at creation, right? The Father is the, the one who speaks, who authors creation. And then in John chapter 1, we, we hear of Jesus as the Word, the Word who was with God at the beginning, the one who is the agent of that creation, and the Spirit as the one who actually is, is breathing life in and entering Adam as life itself. Do you see that? Do you see how that helps you just be captivated by God Himself? And we see that in redemption, too, as the Father is the, the author, the originator, the planner, the, the, the great force behind our salvation. Christ, the one who actually enters into our humanity, bears our sin, 
on the cross rises again. And the Spirit, the one who actually is, is, is applying the merits of Christ to us. You see, all three persons fully engaged. One thing that helps against, by the way, is this thought that I think is very uh, prevalent, that the Father is basically angry, the Father's basically mean, uh, the God of the Old Testament is basically a wrathful, condemning God. But thank goodness, Jesus comes and sort of twists His arm into forgiving us. You see that? But no, what actually happens is, yes, the Son uh, uh, placates the Father's wrath. The Son bears the wrath, but the Father sends the Son. <laughs> right? John Murray, a, a theologian from Westminster Seminary in the past century said, it's not as if the Son, uh, it, it's not as if the atoning work of Jesus constrains God's love. No, God's love constrains to the atoning work of the Son, right? Do you see the, the, all three persons of the Trinity fully engaged in our salvation? So, captivated with God. Next, saturated with love. There's four things here that, this, that Paul is praying for the Spirit to do that, that, uh, for believers, that they would be strengthened, that they would be given power in the Spirit in the inner being so that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith, right? That the indwelling Christ, that the Spirit of Christ would dwell richly in us uh, and that we would be able to comprehend that is uh, to grasp, to be able to grasp the love of Christ, that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints the height and length and breadth and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Isn't that amazing that Paul is praying that you would know something that surpasses knowledge, that you would know something that is fundamentally beyond knowledge, the thing that no eye has seen or ear has heard, the thing into which angels long to look, this love of Christ. He's praying that they would be filled to God's fullness. And now, we need to stop for a second and say, wait a minute. If I've been reading the last three chapters up to this point, isn't all of that true already? Don't we already have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus? Didn't we do that in chapter 1 already? Uh, haven't we already been strengthened with the Spirit as the seal? Hasn't that happened already? Haven't we already been filled to overflowing from God's riches in Christ? Yes, but Paul is praying, that's why the, the language is so important, that he's praying that we would have strength to comprehend. You see, to, 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 to reach out and grasp, to take hold of these things. You see, it's very possible as a believer that all these things can be true of you, and yet as you walk down the street, as you get up Monday morning... They're not what your heart is taking hold of, right? Your heart, perhaps, is taking hold of, oh, goodness, I've got to get all these things done this week, or I'm, I'm still reeling from last week, or I really wish I could have X, Y, Z. I really 
hope that these things happen. So that my, the, the captivation of my heart, the saturation of my heart is not God's love, right? What He wants is for us to take hold of His love, um, for it to actually matter in the warp and woof of a Monday morning. I uh, took my family a couple of years ago to a nature reserve in southwest Virginia where um, I've never heard of this anywhere else. I'm sure it, it exists in other places, but you hike about two miles up just sort of kind of a bald mountain um, and you get to this, this sort of uh, uh, open area. And on this mountain, there's a herd of wild ponies. And you can go park your car, hike up the mountain, and these wild ponies will just walk up to you. They'll eat out of your hand. They're right at, at petting level because they're ponies. Right? You don't, they're, they're, they're gentle. They're used to humans. But they're, they're fundamentally wild. No one's taking care of them. And so we took our, our little kids and my, my son, Sam, who was one year old at the time. Uh, we, we, we hike all the way up there and we finally find these ponies. And my daughter, who's... I think five is, is going crazy over them. And then my son, there was also just sort of some dead wood sitting around. There was a down tree. And what Sam does is he climbs up on a, on a downed tree and puts his hand on one of the branches and starts rocking back and forth and says, like, I'm riding a horse. <laughs> like, this, this tree is my horse. While... There's a herd of wild ponies walking up saying, pet me, feed me acorn, or feed me almonds, and pet me. So there's something about being in the presence, be, ha- having these things right at hand but that he could not grasp. It had not connected yet. The, the thing that he was imagining was actually right here, and he hadn't comprehended it. Uh, the Puritans used to say it this way, <clears throat> excuse me, that there's a fundamental difference between having an idea of the sweetness of honey and tasting that honey is sweet. There's a fundamental difference between having this cerebral idea of the sweetness of honey and having an existential taste. That's why the psalmist says, taste and see. Not, not, <clears throat> excuse me, not think with your brain and know, but beyond that, not short of that, beyond that, taste and see. But could it be that what Paul is inviting us is to taste and see the love of Christ? That it is, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat, that it is uh, uh, that it is broad enough to cover all human beings, right? From all walks of life, rich and poor, well-born, ill-born, well-educated, not educated, well-employed, unemployed, that it is uh, uh, long enough to incorporate every people group, that it, it, it reaches throughout all time, that it, it is high enough 
to, to raise us up to the throne room of God to be within this deep enough to go into the deepest, darkest crevices of human sin and brokenness. That Christ's love actually is big enough to, to meet me in my eating disorder. That it's actually big enough to meet me in my depression. That Christ's love is actually full enough to meet me in my insecurity. That it's actually astounding enough to meet me in my addiction and in my sadness and my loss. That it's not something that I do Sunday morning and then Monday morning I go comprehend other things. No, that what Paul wants is for us in, in this room to comprehend the love of God in a way that we are still holding on to when we leave this place. Saturated with love and then lastly and briefly, punctuated with praise. Punctuated with praise. You see, as he closes this prayer with this doxology, that Paul is taking stock of the entire broad sweep of what he's talked about up to this point. He's, he's taking stock of the eternal plan of God to save sinners, the riches of his love that he's lavished on those who are united to Christ, the, the mystery and the glory of our union with Christ, that, that what is true of Him is true of us, that even though I have not in my flesh died, that just as He says in Galatians 2, that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. He, he, he's taking stock of the depths of sin that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, as we looked at in chapter 2. That look at what God's love has done, the depth that is plumbed, the fact that it's reconciled these opposing forces, and that we see that reconciliation in this mystery of the church that we talked about last week. And he's bursting forth in thanksgiving and praise. It, It really is, this is the moment where he would break into song. And he's flow, thanksgiving is simply flowing out of him. And I would, I would invite you, when you read Scripture, don't skip these little doxologies that Paul will randomly drop in. Don't skip these. Because I'll tell you a secret. Our culture, and I don't just mean the big bad world out there. I mean us in here. We're starving for thankfulness. We are, we are starving for lack of gratitude in our own hearts. There is something holy about expressing and feeling how much other, how much people and forces outside of you have led to the blessings that you enjoy, right? Because we, we live in a, and I'm, I'm not knocking the Duke, but we live in a John Wayne sort of world of ex- expressive and rugged individualism where, where to, to use the phrase, you eat what you kill, Right? And if, and if I'm in this house, then I'm the reason I bought this house. And if I drive this car, I'm the reason I have this. And if I have a stable job, then I'm the one who's done this. And our world is crippled right now with anxiety and angst and depression and divisiveness. And it's interesting that that's happening at the same time that we don't know how to say I have simply received blessing, and I'm thankful. Right? Paul is coming into this 
moment of profound thanksgiving, and we ought not to skip it. The Christian life is to be punctuated with praise like this. This is one of the things that I, I think uh, we frequently are missing uh, as just our, our ability to do basic spiritual disciplines is faltering, that we're not frequently giving thanks to God, and our hearts are getting hollowed out through it. Uh, one, one reason why I think it's valuable to make this point that the flourishing life is punctuated with praise is that we are fundamentally worshiping beings, right? You, you are fundamentally a praise giver, a glory giver. And, and the choice is not so much, will I worship God or will I not? It's, will I worship God or will I worship something else? Listen to what one uh, thinker, David Foster Wallace, said, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing, and I should say, this is not a believer. He's writing as, as, as a, a secular thinker, not writing as a Christian. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he says, outside of worshiping God, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are, what, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On, on one level, we already know this. It's been codified in Scripture. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect and being smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. I think that's hitting the nail exactly on the head, that we are fundamentally worship, worshiping beings. And so this passage is something of a reorienting jolt to connect us back to this idea that we were, in Augustine's words, we were made for God, right? And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. You will worship something, but anything outside of Christ that you are worshiping will eat you alive, it's a fundamental maxim. Tolkien put it this way, the hands of the king are the hands of the healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. You see, and it's, it's being drawn to do what Paul is doing and gazing at God himself, gazing at the beauty of the gospel, putting your confidence in him that draws our hearts and our eyes away from idols to walk in obedience to him. Tis the look that melted Peter. Tis the face that Stephen saw. Tis the heart that wept with Mary can alone from idols draw. Captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now unrivaled king. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, would you right now crown yourself unrivaled king in our hearts so that we would be drawn away from idols, drawn away from beauty and power and our own bodies and our own possessions and money and all the other things that vie for our affection so that we would put our confidence and our trust in you alone. Our Father, our, our hearts are idle factories, and we are restless, and we, we long to be drawn home to you, and so we pray that you would do that. And we pray that you would do it in spite of anything I've said. Would you hide my words behind the cross so that we would only come out of this room worshiping Jesus? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.